This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Sensing Bros, a program with a focus on youth well-being. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all, y'all. Welcome to Sensing Bros. Wherever you are, I hope you're doing okay under the circumstances. My name's Phil. I'm a counsellor uh, with Mapumaya and a social scientist by profession. And among other things, I'm very glad that we are moving closer to being out of uh, the COVID restriction. But having said that, I'm sure like a lot of you, um, you've been experiencing significant frustrations. Um, so today um, I want to talk really about how do, you, how do we maintain a sense of optimism and at, at the same time when there's so much disruption and also uh, the temptation sometimes to find a uh, what I call a false security in binary or polarization narratives. So I'm I'm here with Talia. Hello, um, my name is Talia. I am Phil's youngest daughter, and I am two weeks away from completing my master's degree in international law. And um, yeah, that's, two, is it two weeks? It's only two weeks now. Heck. Yep, my dissertation's due. <laughs> Your dissertation's due in two weeks? It and is that's due the, in two weeks. And that's the final and that's, dot. And that's it. And and then your professional's A. Yes, no? and then yes. I am going on to my professional studies course, uh, which is, so I did an undergraduate law degree. But then if you want to be a lawyer, lawyer, you need to uh, an extra profs course. It's how they, um, yeah, you think you're done, but you're not. <laughs> you're never, you're never finished. Until you get to the end of your life, and then, and then I, I can finally say, "Oh, I'm done with my legal education." Now. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But what I was going to say is, have you heard of Dr. Fennick? No, I haven't. Okay, so Dr. Fennick's, and he's a uh, he's a psychiatrist, but he's he's one of the early or originate original kind of uh, researchers in the area of of near death experiences. So he's done a lot of work around hospices. Why have I gone there? Yeah. Because he just talks about it in terms of, um, you know, concluding. He's got a book out called The Art of Dying, and he concludes really from all his research that uh, conscious, it's an, death is really an expansion of consciousness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and why have so, you gone there? Well, because I find it comforting in these troubling times. Oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, we were... <laughs> I'll remember that when I'm finishing my, my master's station. That's right. Death can, is just an expansion of consciousness. <laughs> you can end it, end your dissertation with that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to conclude, we all die. That is the conclusion to everything, though. Every dissertation, every brilliant this piece will... of hmm. um, literature that's ever been written. Well, I'm not claiming my dissertation. <laughs> I'm not like any stretch of the imagination. 
But it's a major, on that, because we can come back to where we began, mm-hmm. but just what was, what's your main thesis about? Um, <clears throat> so, my, I'm looking at international investment law, which sounds very dry and boring, and it is, <laughs> um, and, but I'm looking at international investment law and its intersection with indigenous rights law or international indigenous rights. Um, So there's the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was uh, adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in 2007, Mm. I believe it was. And that sets out, that was really the first time globally that um, any kind of major there was any kind of major recognition of indigenous rights or articulation of them. So 144 states voted in favour of it, and only four abstained. Did you know what states abstained? It was Canada, the US, New Zealand, and Australia. So all the Kansas states, we all abstained. But um, we actually, we didn't even abstain. We voted against. But we've all reversed our position. Um, so I'm looking at how we can, how international investment agreements, which can be very controversial. So, for example, the TPPA is can be considered an international investment agreement because it has investment provisions. Mm. Um, so I'm looking at how in the future of negotiating these big agreements that are aimed at economic integration, how can we integrate UNDRIP into those, into the texts? UNDRIP. UNDRIP. UNDRIP is the acronym for, (laughs) sorry, it's the acronym for United Nations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Declaration. So that's what what my head has been in. Uh, But I guess it does kind of relate to the broader topic that we're talking about today, which is how do you maintain a sense of optimism or hope? Because um, I think it's very easy to look at the inequities in the world. And international investment law is a really good example of inequities because it basically hands puts all the, the power into the hands of multinational corporations. And local communities have no voice before, for example, an arbitral tribunal, an investor state dispute settlement. And it feels very unjust, and there's often pushback from states and from these big multinational corporations to including broader interests and broader concerns, like human rights concerns, indigenous rights concerns, into these agreements that are really intended to just protect the rich and powerful, right? But I think that since 2007... All four states that voted against it have now reversed their position completely. Canada, only a couple of weeks ago, actually passed a bill saying that they're going to implement UNDRIP into their domestic law. Um, so I think that there's a cause for optimism, even though there is so much resistance from very powerful forces against recognising the rights of Indigenous peoples. Um, and Indigenous peoples seem like they have... Uh, so much less of a voice on the international stage. <laughs> I think I believe that that trend is changing 
And so even with everything going on in the world, there are some things that are getting better. I don't want to sound like naively optimistic or hopeful. It's still an upward, uphill battle, but yeah. Certainly under Ardern's government, we've done a lot more to towards considering how we can implement UNDRIP domestically. One of the reasons that we were originally hesitant to to sign up to it was because we had we already had quite a robust treaty settlement process. Right, right. So we're kind of, but that was really just the state saying, "No, we're already doing things. We're already great," <laughs> but we weren't. <laughs> we weren't great. No, and and when you look at sort of the disparities and inequities, that's your evidence for saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know. because so UNDRIP is um what I'm talking about in my dissertation is it's really underpinned by two normative forces or two big ideas. One is human rights, mm. and the other is decolonization, and they're different, <laughs> but mm. they sit in that same agreement, mm. and. The parts of UNDRIP that are aimed at decolonisation are the parts that, for example, give Indigenous peoples the right to self-determination, which means the right to self-government. The parts of the agreement that give Indigenous peoples the right to have their treaties respected by states. All of that is aimed at reversing or trying to correct the damage that was done via colonisation to indigenous economies, indigenous uh, legal traditions, indigenous governance structures, and revitalize them and, and sort of give them the recognition that they are due. <laughs> is New Zealand a settler colonial society or is it post colonial? <laughs> Thank you for that loaded question. Um, I would call it settler colonial because. Uh, the big decolonisation project that happened last century, so that was following post-war. World War Two, post-war. Mm. Oh, yeah, you're onto it. Uh, that was really about. It was a, a lot of African states, for example, um, basically freeing themselves from the colonial rule of European nations. Had kind of been the status quo up until that point, and this was a big global movement that was mandated by the UN and part of the democratization of the UN as well. It's when all of these countries <clears throat> started joining the UN, which had previously just been quite a small league of nations, and um, like the Justice League, yeah, <laughs> the Justice League of Nations, yeah, we should call that something, yeah, um, the League of Nations, yeah, okay, yeah, so, so that's, but, that but, we're talking post war. Post-war, but po- post-war to probably the nineties, maybe. Mm, yeah, it's very recent. It's very, very recent. But see, this movement, this decolonization project, is mm. why you'll hear the phrase now that we're a post-colonial society or we're living in a post-colonial world because um, these colonial structures or these colonial governments were pushed out. And yeah, given back to the <laughs> the the state. Um, but but that movement was really denied to Indigenous peoples in Kansas states, 
because the idea was that it only applied to overseas possessions by European uh, colonising countries. It didn't apply to those indigenous nations that existed within states. So the indigenous nations that exist within um, the United States, within Canada, the tribal peoples that exist within Australia, the iwi that exist within Mm. New Zealand, we weren't overseas possessions. (laughs) Mm. I say we, I'm not indigenous, but... um, That's an interesting idea, though, because, you know, Mark Charles stuff. Yes, yeah. You know, and and um, and 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 driving for conciliation rather than reconciliation. Yeah, because we haven't had in New Zealand and in America and in Canada and Australia, especially not in Australia, we there has been no reconciliation or no conciliation to begin with. The treaty settlement process was the beginning for New Zealand of a conciliation process between Māori and the Crown. The reparations sort of conversation that seems to be on the margins in social media mm. uh, in America. Mm. Um, is really complex, eh? But the intention behind it is the same. That that something was has been sort of tragically taken away. Um, and someone's got to pay the price, but it's more than that. It's like reparation actually means there need, needs to be, you know, some sort of healing, eh? Mm. That's more than talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, I so, think that. So the the indigenous peoples of the the Kansas states, mm. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, US. Mm. Uh, you would have thought they were a wee bit more progressive, eh? You, you would think, but no. How misleading. It's very misleading. And yeah. um, that's actually part of colonial narratives. Yeah. They say, hey, we've already done all of this. We're doing so great. We treat our Indigenous people so well yeah. when they're not. And that's always been the case. <laughs> that has always been the case. <laughs> um but I would say that the experience, even though the indigenous peoples are so diverse across those four countries, um, there is a similarity of experience and um, mm. that mm. Um, they, for example, they are colonized by Britain predominantly. I mean, there was also, you know, the Dutch and the French and who are all in there in that second wave of colonization. Uh, but British colonial policy was to often to sign treaties with the indigenous nations and then to uh, break those treaties. <laughs> so, mm. Or to purposefully make them vague so that they could manipulate the terms to their benefit. So there's a common experience. The, the exception is Australia. Mm. Uh, but recently, Australia, certain states in Australia have been in talks with Indigenous peoples about um, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with uh, signing modern treaties. So, so Australia is sort of the exception in this. Um, but 
what's really important for a lot of indigenous nations and iwi is that they have what they were expected they would have under their treaties finally be recognised by the state. Yeah, that's it in the, at the heart of it, eh? Yeah, it's about promises that were broken. It's about deception that happened that needs to be exposed. And it's about correcting the narrative that lies at the foundation of our nation. And that's why Indigenous rights is so uh, they are so controversial because they challenge power structures they challenge the very foundation of power structures they challenge the legitimacy of our institutions and if we are ever to fully recognize self-determination and fully recognize um the rights that indigenous peoples had under many of these treaties they're not all the same but um particularly, you know, the, the right to tēnuranga, tēratanga under the Treaty of Waitangi, to, um, it would, Do you know, when, sorry, it would involve a significant constitutional and administrative shift. Mm. It would involve a change in decision-making authority in our nation. And there are a lot of people that are very uncomfortable with that. Uh, well, <laughs> yes, because there's a couple of things that, I automatically think about his terms of the superiority position. Oh, yes. I mean, that's, yeah. And yes, you can have the rights that I give you. <laughs> exactly. And so this is where those two normative forces that I talked about, decolonization and the human rights model, which underpin UNDRIP, sometimes clash because decolonization is about recognizing the inherent rights that we have according to our own legal traditions, according to our own um, position as First Peoples. And then the human rights model is sometimes, it can very easily slip into that rights-granting mechanism that was used by colonists <laughs> right, yeah, to colonise. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is why you need to understand UNDRIP as being... The, the conversation both. about power by unequal power yeah. brokers, eh? yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And so you're seeing in your interpretation of, of events mm. some some progress in that mental conversation around I, I'm hopeful but I'm also Mental uh, conversation. A, a mental well, conversation. I, mean, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I do I mean it's I think that the arc of history bends towards Indigenous self-determination. I mean, that's where it has to go. And if it's not going there, then that's really tragic. Mm. <laughs> but I, I, I believe it's going there, and I want to do my part in making it so. Mm. So that's that's a mo that motivates you. It does motivate me yeah. because it's a great injustice that has not been addressed. And even though I'm not indigenous to Aotearoa, um, although we we are Pacifica people, <laughs> so mm. we're, in, we're indigenous to the ocean here. <laughs> uh, Oceania. Yeah, we're indigenous well, to the Moana. <laughs> to the Moana. That's interesting, eh? Because I often think about that. Yes, we we are in legal terms, Tauiwi. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but I also think that after many, 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 many years of working in this space and seeing the sort of the impact and the intergenerational mm. stuff that's happened for for people who who are struggling mm. in life. Um, that at both macro level and at micro level there's a much better um, there's a much better and more enlightened light on on this thing called justice or social justice mm. yeah you know the things that are coming to light like you go me too movement Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. All of these things are sort of um, uh, what, you know, the birthing of something that could be better. It might not. But it yeah, be. it could be. Yeah, It yeah. could be better, yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. And, well, it, it has to be more just. We have to get the story straight, and until we don't, until we get our story straight, until we understand what happened in history. This is this thing I've been coming across a lot. Why? Uh, and it's a blind spot. Mm. It's the it's the, um, the sort of like the theory behind the blind spot that let's just move on mm. and not go back to some of those foundational historical roots of yeah of the, why the, the progress kind and, of yeah mm. so post-modernity post-modern post post-post you know um post big pharma for people in mental health who are in the recovery movement um there's been some, some some stuff, you know, um, that's I think evolutionary in terms of our ideas mm. that give me hope. Mm. But in this, here's the question: um, If I say the word crisis is consciousness, what do you think of? Crisis consciousness. Yeah, the words I meant. The word <laughs> crisis consciousness. Crisis and a crisis consciousness. What do I think? Yeah, what comes to mind? Um, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. No, continue. Um, I crisis consciousness. Well, I'm not. Sh I'm not sure, but this is my. This is immediately where I would go. Is that it's somebody who's living in a state of overwhelm. Hmm. Mm. And someone who's living in a state of, um, yep, yep, probably trapped in the media cycle, and there's no shortage of crises. Yep. Crises. Yeah. What is the plural of that? Crises. Crises. Yeah. Yeah. There's no shortage of crises, but someone who is not able to um, accept that there are things that they cannot control. Mm. And to nevertheless feel competent to do what they can in the world. Mm. Um, the valence is towards or is towards despair. Yes, right. 
despairing and with that helplessness and mm. powerlessness mm. and all that and anxiety mm. and which brings me to the the different things that we've seen recently around certain people groups religious not knowing what to do but finding trying to find some security in Armageddon or the end of times or Jesus is coming. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that um that visioning mm. of purpose in the world that takes them out of the world and mm. tries to keep them safe. Mm. And I've seen that kind of ramping up. Mm. Yeah, I think um it's <clears throat> there's a narrative, everybody sort of has a narrative that gives them direction for me that narrative is one of unpacking colonization understanding my my role in addressing it reversing it moving my community my nation towards reconciliation that but um i mean that's one thing that i'm here to do (laughs) i don't think it's the only thing i'm here to do but I think for a lot of Christians and religious communities, when they look at the world, the narrative is um, that everything is going downhill, <laughs> but we're okay, and we just need to get as many people onto this life raft with us as we can. That's if they're evangelical. Mm, the ark. The, the ark, and Jesus is going to come back and rescue us. Jesus is going to come back and fend off all of our enemies um and so there's almost an abdication of responsibility to to do anything with any of the other justice issues that are going on in our society yeah so so the 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 the, i'm i'm concerned because of that pushes people if they haven't already been in that kind of bubble of being apolitical and not involved in community Mm. further into Let's not involve ourselves with our neighbours so much unless yeah. we can bring them into our bubble. Yeah. But if we can't, well, there's our always, ideological yeah, bubble. There's always, been, there's always been religious groups like this, I mean, throughout history, like the Mennonites, for example, which I think are part of Anabaptist. Or they, anyway, um, the Mennonites were, until about the 1960s, they were very... Uh, they would call it what was the word non non reactionary i can't remember there's a word <laughs> that they would call it but they didn't engage in society they didn't put themselves forward for school boards or political roles they didn't vote they were very disengaged and that was part of them trying to keep themselves separate pure. and pure from the world yeah but that sort of i mean there's some other really really great things about mennonite teaching yeah but that changed in the 1960s with actually black and brown Mennonites mm. kind of said, hey, we're fighting like a race war here. <laughs> we're, we need you. Your silence is actually complicity. Yeah, so they pushed that, them. They yeah. said that even they, your silence is you supporting white supremacy. So you have to kind of stand up. Mm. And they did. Mm. And now they're what we would call pacifists. Mm. So they became very pacifist in the way they approached politics and engaging with the world. Mm. Um, but 
So the tension for me is from the movement to the social gospel, mm. and then the other big movement to the prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah. 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 And again, it, the the thing about the prosperity gospel is the kind of preaching that um, you you purchase God's favor, mm. really. So. Um, and even yeah. that even relates to your good behavior. Yeah. You're earning God's favor with your good behavior. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Here's a, and here's another thing that was on my mind recently because these are big sort of issues that we could unpack a, a lot more. Um, that I, I, I was listening to a guy online and he was saying some pretty interesting stuff, you know, from a particular. Um, faith perspective then he got to this this part where he says but my great mission in life is to um, is to become nothing so that God can be all and I thought mm. my heart just went sunk <laughs> I just went oh wow yeah who why is that what's that really saying and and it's saying well, you know, I'm worthless. Mm. Get rid of me. Mm. And that's a really good thing to do. Mm. Sort of like... It's like the, that worm of the earth am I. And yet at the same time, I want to tell everybody how loved they are. The two don't go together. No. The, the two messages of worth is one saying, I, I really, really want you to become part of our faith community mm. because you're worthless mm. but you're actually incredibly valuable yeah. <laughs> a, I don't find the I find that dissonance yeah um, quite common so I'll, I'll say one thing about that dissonance yeah. and then um, I want to go back to the point about the life mission and the social gospel and how people conceptualize that or how and how I've conceptualized that, how I've been able to sort of bring the two together. Yeah, cool. Um, so firstly, I think that that let me become nothing. I've heard that refrain a lot in evangelical circles. And yeah, that the discord between telling people they're loved and that they should also become nothing is has always struck me as really bizarre. But I think the it's sort of one of the examples of human beings taking something that's virtuous to an extreme. So yeah, that's a good way of putting that, it. that self um, selflessness to a certain extent is virtuous, but when you take it to that extreme, it becomes destructive. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like they're trying to become so selfless that they literally get rid of themselves. <laughs> and that's, it's like, okay, no, you've stepped over the line. <laughs> um, mm. People who want to become, who want to be so, I guess, considerate and obliging of others in moderation, that's good. We all, we need to be considerate and obliging of others in order to function in society. Unless, you know, you know, you're just very disagreeable and you just blow through life. Um, But most of us want to, you know, have a modicum of respect, but then you can... That in some people just goes over the edge and they become absolutely 
doormatted <laughs> by their own need to to not rock the boat, to never make anyone, to Would never you... have an enemy, which is when it goes extreme. And right. then um, to that point about the social gospel, for me, I, I mean, I consider myself a Christian and a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus even, but my life mission is not to become nothing. <laughs> it's to become Christ-like. And I don't see Christ as being anti-political or disengaged at all. If he was anti-political and completely disengaged, he would not have been crucified by the empire. I see him challenging and exposing power structures everywhere he went, you know? And so I'm yeah, I'm happy yeah. that I'm able to tie together my legal interests, which are in human rights and in indigenous rights uh with um what i see is a need in society to shine a light on injustice and to i guess reverse or address a a serious tragedy a serious crime that's happened um and I see that as part and parcel of serving Jesus. That's, and I, but I know, and you see your profession very much in the same light. Um, it's even more direct <laughs> because you're with people day in, day out. Um, you're, you're operating at that micro level, whereas I'm operating very much more at the macro level, looking at structures and institutions and the, the law. <laughs> Well, the part of part of this is that that um, the you know some of our kind of leading sociologists or so social scientists you know talk about social cohesion and faith in institutions, confidence in institutions. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and um, I still have confidence in our institutions. Same. I mean, yeah. I'm not. There are people that don't. I know, and and <laughs> I, I'm for reform. Yeah, I, I'm not for, um, you know, I. There needs to be some massive shifting. Mm. In some spaces, um, and you know, the pace of change can be incrementally appear really slow. So when you look at things going into these institutions, pace mm. of change for whatever reason, because of bureaucracy and things, mm. can seem slow. Yeah. And sometimes in the NGO world, we're already way ahead yeah. of, of where we see... <laughs> the cumbersome... <laughs> the process. But, ministries But I have faith in the institution. Yeah. Yeah. And I was talking to, to, a, to a guy who's 30 years in, in, um, in, the, in, in that space, and he's in the NGO world mm. now, you know. And so you do tend to see things cycle. Yeah. But I see, I'm a believer in my ears to the ground in terms of some of the social discourse stuff that's going on, mm. which I think has been disruptive mm. to systems. And because we're going through all these reviews and reforms at the moment, which are really valuable, yeah. maintaining a sense of hope and confidence is incredibly important. Mm. 
Yes, because very, because very often you can slip into cynical yeah, cynicism, which will. Sorry. No, no, yeah, yeah. Finish your thought. Um, well, cynicism is a fast route to despair, mm. which is not uh, conducive <laughs> to anything. <laughs> to no. shifting um, things. I mean, I there are so so coming back to crisis consciousness, right? Mm. Um, at the moment, my my belief is that in the next few years, I'm going to focus on um, promote, promoting and encouraging kind of the conversation around existential positive psychology, mm. so that the narratives become much more about meaning mm. and purpose and. and Sense making. Mm. Yeah. 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 I think um, time, we're definitely in a time of transition. I keep hearing that word everywhere. Mm. And pivot. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to pivot, man. Got to, like, I mean, pivot. yeah, there's only so many pivots we can do. Yeah, but I think you know, I, I not hear too it many in, in a lifetime. The, international investment law realm oh, a lot wow. so there's all this talk a, a, amongst academics and um institutions that investment law is in a state of transition and so i'm hearing but i'm hearing that everywhere as well yeah. and you're hearing that i am there's significant reform and but i think that accelerated change accelerated is change yeah and yeah. i think that it can f- feel um overwhelming mm. <laughs> and I think that people can, especially if people have benefited from the status quo or they haven't seen the need for change, that's when they start getting trapped into those, uh, oh, society's going to hell in a handbasket. Yep. Um, but then on the other side of it, it, it can seem quite, um, you can become despairing. You can think, oh, well, this change, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not fast enough. Yeah. It's, so you've got this one, gonna, this group of people that's like, there's yeah. too much change. It's unnecessary. It's a whole bunch of um, nail biting, and then the other people are like, there's not enough change. <laughs> have you heard the um, the phrase "doomers"? Yeah. 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 So there's a culture of dooming, mm. which again leads to other things other potential trajectories on how we choose to be and live in the world you know yeah so let's go back to the dystopian futures <laughs> yeah so over the span of a lifetime because I, I, I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking I was trying to imagine 2050 yeah you know it's not that far away it's not <laughs> and but the 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 big changes, the technological changes, the AI mm. world, the the changes in the, the the labor forces and all that. What is a constant that's going to remain true in terms of society being better? Right. What? What? Because, a, like, in twenty fifty, how old will you be? I'll be fifty three. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you'll be close to my age now. Yeah. Oh, that's frightening. I know, I know. So when you think <laughs> about it, you go, man, wow, okay. Uh, 
Well, I don't know. So there's just so much uncertainty. And especially if you if you go out 30, it's really hard to start predicting things 20, 30, 50 years in the future. Yeah, because we are in this transition. We're in the transition yeah. towards some, something, something new. We, we don't know what. Yeah. Um, so really, anything you say is just kind of conjecture. But, mm. but there are certain... What, what? I guess faith is the part of Anchors. a person that believes there are certain things that will stay the same. Mm. There are certain truths that will hold true no matter what shifts. Mm. And the things that you believe in, that's what you put your faith in. Well, I think this will, will still hold true. How we answer the question about who is my neighbour and how we, how we shape um, communities of belonging mm. that are not authoritarian. Yeah. That's quite good. I would like to quote myself on that. <laughs> yeah. How do we shape communities that are not authoritarian? Oh, well, and, and, and through the different mechanisms of the great big wide world. Because globalism is over in some shape or form, but it's not over. Mm. Like people are talking about this. The, the accelerated pace of change in terms of the birth of multinational corporations, yeah. things like that during the 90s, early 2000s, that really came to a head with the 2008 crash. Yeah. Um, and so since then, globalization has been slowing down. FDI flows have, sorry, foreign direct investment, which is one way people measure globalization of business, has been sort of on the decline, and especially after COVID as well. Mm. So in that sense... Yes, but in another sense, um, our communication technologies have only improved. Mm. <laughs> so there's a globalization of knowledge and very much yeah. the, the people, the, the democratization of yeah. knowledge about this, this stuff is good. Well, the generation that's growing up after even me, so the generation yeah. below my generation, what, what, they're so much more globally aware than I ever was and we ever were because yeah. they have cell phones, like these smartphones in their Yep. I didn't have a smartphone. Yeah. Like it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, I've been looking at some of the briefings to government around digital technology and its impacts on on young people's mental health. Yeah, hmm, very interesting. I know. So here's a, here's a, here's a question. The, um, what, is, what is one of the more disturbing things you've heard recently in people? Dealing with dealing with COVID. Are you alluding to the the Jesus vaccinates you? I am. <laughs> uh, so, there's a church in our neighbourhood that we have discussed on this podcast before. Um, it is really very heavily influenced by one personality, uh, the apostle. And um, who's a, a a white male in his sixties with a lifestyle property and some fancy gadgets like a Maserati. <laughs> and anyway, he um, during the lockdown, the services went online, and so his he posted a message online, and in this message, he told the congregation that uh, that. 
Jesus vaccinates you from COVID. <laughs> as well as from sin. <laughs> did he say did he, he said that? Him? He said that. Not only does Jesus vaccinate you so from it was, COVID. It was sort of tongue in cheek, but it's not. It was tongue in cheek, but it's very irresponsible to the only way to use that in a joke is if you're making fun of people that actually believe Jesus vaccinates them from COVID. Do you know what I I find disturbing about that? What? The the millions of people with a faith whom Jesus did not vaccinate (laughs) from COVID who had COVID. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not comforting. Yeah, it's like, well, it's look not, at what's happening not, in America, the most evangelical nation in the world. Yeah. Jesus didn't vaccinate America. <sighs> it's not gracious, and it's not loving our community, and it's it's also not what Jesus is about at all. Jesus didn't come to give you a comfortable, cushy life and protect you from all disease. I mean, he came so that you could so that we could become like him. And he was somebody who rocked the boat a little bit um, in terms of standing up for justice for the poor, the oppressed. There's a sort of an interesting, well, it's a, it's a tension for me around people sort of defending a faith. Mm. could be whatever faith you're wanting to defend. It doesn't matter. Uh, and going to their sources of authority mm. and becoming authoritarian. Yeah. Well, this is where the, if we go back to what we were talking about, the humility or the submission aspect, in moderation, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be humble. It's a good thing to occasionally submit to another person's opinion and change your mind. It's a good thing to take on a person's advice it's a good thing to have mentors and people that you you know see as elders and who are wise that's all good but it goes to an extreme when somebody else is your spiritual authority and i mm. think that that's completely false i think when mm. jesus preached he said that the spirit indwells you um there can't be a greater affirmation that this is and this will sound very scandalous to some to some evangelical Christians, but that each person is their own highest spiritual authority. And that's not a, um, I can do what I want kind of thing. That's a, you have a responsibility. Um, but it, it doesn't take away community. It's not an individualistic thing. It's just a sense of actually no one else is living in my body. <laughs> No one else is my soul. That is the approach that I have in counselling. Yeah. People really are the authors of their own life. And you can have people that come along and help you author, right? Who help. Absolutely, yeah. But, but at the end of the day, you're your own spiritual authority. Yeah. that's And authority, authoritative is okay. Mm. Authoritarianism is is you know the characteristics of authoritarianism are handing over the chapter and the story in your life to somebody else's expectations of you mm-hmm. in a way that does you uh, in cults the the process of love bombing people you know mm-hmm. is really psychologically 
manipulating the the need to feel special and belong. But it doesn't just happen in some of those more um, uh, more extreme extreme cults. cults. We'll get yeah. Netflix documentaries. It, it, it can happen in communities where somebody assumes that they are hearing from God mm. and have the are entitled mm. to tell somebody else that their opinion of them mm. and their view of God means they that they should really become subservient. So but, when someone exalts themselves over somebody else yeah. in the sense that they're closer to God and um, there's a feature or a, or a tendency to push people into uh, one-up, one-down relationships. Mm. Yeah. And I think in some cultures and in some religions it's more pronounced. So so on the extreme ends of those religions, I would say... Well, you have cults that spring up around gurus, for example. I mean, taking on a guru is a really common practice. And Yeah. Um, so we're, are you anti-gurus? No, no, I'm not, because I think that if a guru or a spiritual leader has a healthy respect for themselves and for other people, yeah, yeah, then it's fine if they don't become authoritarian. authoritarian. But yeah. the thing yeah. is, there's something about the position that attracts authoritarian people, <laughs> and there's something about the position that can turn people authoritarian. And so you have to yeah. have someone that's so incredibly wise and put together to do you I know think, but I, I think I, the people that are actually I, wise and put together end up being counsellors not gurus well, well, well you end up thank you are you referring to me no yeah well, I mean I, you I, could I, have I been think, a guru but you just I didn't think, have it in you I just didn't really want that badge of honour <laughs> no but here's the thing it's not because oh, I like how you put that mm. you know if they're not you know, if they maintain it, their, their humility, then wise people definitely. Yeah. I mean... Um, because... Oh, sorry. No, no, sorry, finish. Because that's been authoritative in life. Yeah. Because sometimes you, know? you do have wisdom and competency in certain areas that another person doesn't. So... That's right. I mean, we're all learners. Yeah. So well, somebody... Like, even the people... Like, I spend hours and hours and hours, you know, um, looking at... at at theories of life and well-being and mental health mm. and and continuing to learn. But everybody's so unique that when you go into a counselling role with them, it's there's a huge amount of mystery. Mm. So yeah. I'm gonna flip back to what I said at the beginning. One of the one of the keys to helping people transition through death mm. for people who are afraid you know, is to step back and have a curiosity about what's to come. Yeah. And yeah. with curiosity, there's a diminishment of fear because a healthy curiosity turns it into a wonderment yeah. and, a, and, a, and a journey. Mm. So sometimes with people, I encourage them to look at their life with curiosity. Yeah, that's good. That thing of that theme of curiosity is so important because I think that curiosity is also a very key aspect of loving your neighbor mm. it's being curious about your neighbor and what happens with these authoritarian type spiritual leaders 
is they cease being curious. So they cease being curious about they cease being curious about the people that they're mentoring because they just come to them with all of the answers, and that's when it becomes an issue. Pronouncing and prescribing mm. and preaching at. Mm. It's interesting because people and and those preachers in particular, I used to enjoy a good preacher. Mm. Um, but now I've kind of like, I've gone down the, um, the Cornell West sort of weaving of speaking. Mm. I, I'm not sure. What's okay. That? Okay. Um, no, he's a great, he's a great um, orator in the black community in America. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, written many books. Uh, was a gangster, became a Christian, became a professor, you mm. know, talks a lot in terms of, you have to Google him, but YouTube him, because he's such a fresh, I think, teacher, refers, loves his music and refers to, you know, mm. just weaves it all together and this. Um, and he's got a lot of soul, a lot of passion. Mm. Yeah, I mean, orators are... Wise dude, uh, wise dude. He was in The Matrix. Oh, was he? Yeah. <laughs> Which one was he? Yeah. Um, uh, what was his character? I can't remember the name that he played. But very... Somebody that I look look at and go, yeah, man, you you are got a heart for justice. You're kind and you're still enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. But you, you've taken life seriously and you've critiqued it as well. Yeah. And that's what he I hasn't aspire been, to be. Yeah, exactly. People okay. like that, they're great. Yeah. He's got a big gap in his tooth too, so I'm okay with my one now. He's got a whole missing tooth and I have two. <laughs> <laughs> For people who can't see me. <laughs> I have thought about, I thought about going to the dentist and getting it, you know. Mm. But how the heck. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my I'm I'm on my decline. <laughs> There's nothing left to prove. <laughs> um, mm. So so curiosity, be curious. Mm. I think that's a real key to being optimistic. Yes, continually curious, and a real key to not 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 slipping too much into despair. Now, if people are despairing, completely understandable. Yeah. But this, it is it is understandable, but it's not justifiable <laughs> because grief is natural. We should grieve when it's when it's right to grieve things. But I think um, that falling into despair is when you start to think you have all the answers and you know where it's going, and you don't. That's actually quite true. Yeah. Um, the way I approach it when people are despairing, because there's a lot of a, a, a lot of the thinking around dis, around despair is just people being hijacked by certain beliefs that they've allowed to nest. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and whether it's a little bit different for people who are carrying some sort of complex shame mm. and guilt and and things that are um, are reactions to traumatic events and moments it's a little bit different but ultimately it's probably a good way to end end the show <laughs> that that um most things that we have to face in life 
in the words of Viktor Frankl, Bob May, in a, in a paraphrasing of the world to meaning, we have control over our attitude, our attitude to circumstances. Mm. We fundamentally can control. We are our own spiritual authority. And so the sense of despair and, and being overwhelmed and helplessness and all that gets wrapped up in that mm. really comes back to the, the acceptance and an acceptance and commitment theory. The idea is we accept mm. what we have to accept. Yeah. And then we commit ourselves to a way of being. Yeah. And that's And we that's move from it. that space. It's, it's not so much about finding that grand mission that's going to make you valiant and important and a hero. It's about finding a way of being here in all circumstances. So and, has, yeah. this is my last thing and then you can eat it. But my, my last thing is what I'm going to do is wrap a whole lot of um, uh, things that I write and talk about in terms of the capaciousness to hold the joys and the sorrows of our life circumstances in a way that does no harm. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And then with mental health, it's always, oh, no, I'll leave it with that, but with mental health, it's always determining what the level of impairment is, mm. which is really working out with people when the capaciousness that they have they don't feel they have. It's working out how to strengthen that. Mm. Yeah. Yes, because people are capable of a lot more than they believe they are. Most of the time. That's really good. That's a great way, place to end it, isn't it? This has yeah. been a very muddled conversation. We've sort of gone all over the place. But it, there was a thread. There is a thread. What was the thread for you? Uh change uncertainty and yet hope <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that was the freedom yeah okay good people thank you for tuning in take care thank you too.